Want to know anything and everything related to pets? You're in the right place. Join us as we talk to pet industry experts about pet fitness and health, pet travel, foods and recipes, pet horoscopes, and much, much more. This episode is brought to you by Fido Fitness and Play, the pet industry's leader in pet transportation. This is Everything Pets with your host, Ed Walden. Hello, pet and animal lovers. This is Ed Walden, your host of the Everything Pets podcast, and I am especially excited to be with you as we chat with veterinarian Charles McMillan about how puppies transition from puppyhood to senior and all points in between. Dr. McMillan is a graduate of Tuskegee University's College of Veterinary Medicine and is fully licensed to practice veterinary medicine in the great state of Georgia. Dr. McMillan is an experienced veterinarian with an impressive track record, practicing nearly a decade of small animal general medicine. Dr. McMillan is loaded with answers and good advice for pet parents. But before we get into that hot topic, let me share with you some cool facts about animals. Cows can sleep standing up, but they can only dream lying down. At birth, a panda is smaller than a mouse and weighs about four ounces. A sea lion is the first non-human mammal with a proven ability to keep a beat. Okay, now that you're finished keeping that beat, let's not skip a beat and chat with Dr. McMillan about man's best friend, dogs. Dr. McMillan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, with the onslaught of the COVID-19 pandemic and its ill effects on the world, including the quarantine, many people flock to dog breeders and animal shelters seeking puppies and dogs as an attempt to fill the void of companionship. Many are first-time pet parents and may not be fully informed about caring for and living with a pet. So what we wish to do today is to provide some helpful information on caring for a dog and what to expect as the puppy grows. So let's jump into the first question that we have. When should you transition your puppy from puppy food to adult food? Right. So, you know, there isn't really a consensus, but the two kind of guidelines that we go by, uh, one is when the puppy has um, gotten 80 percent of its adult size. Um, And so if you have that information based on the mother and the father, once they get around that 80 percent mark, um, it's it's safe to go ahead and transition. Um, Alternatively, you can just uh, transition them to an adult food once they turn a year of age. And that's pretty much Mm -hmm. the consensus. Um, around the field of veterinary medicine. So either 80% of the, its adult size or once it turns one year of age. What should a dog parent look for in, in dog food ingredients to support a healthy, well-balanced diet? So, Ed, that's a loaded question um, and a complex one. But if we simplify it, so essentially dogs don't need ingredients. They need nutrients. And so what I mean by that is two dog foods can have the same ingredients, but depending on how they're prepared, how they're processed or not processed, depending on where the ingredients are on the label, 
uh, depending on the relative portions of those ingredients, how those ingredients react with one another, that makes the difference as far as finding a, a complete and balanced diet. And so what I generally recommend owners do is they look at the label um, and they consult with their veterinary primary care provider to come up with the diet that's best for their individual pet's needs. So do dietary uh, requirements vary from breed to breed? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Some breeds certainly require more calories, you know, for instance, if they're a working dog. Um, but as a general rule, there is a governing body, the Association of American Feed Control Officials, and they've kind of come up with guidelines that all dogs require. And it's important for the owners when picking out a high quality food that they make sure that it has an AFCO statement on the label. And so that AFCO statement will kind of guarantee that that food is for whatever life stage that the dog may be in. Mm. So you've got growth, lactation, maintenance, adult food, puppy food. So as long as that statement is on there, they let you know that it's been tested on whatever life stage that it said it's been on. Usually the clinical trials are six months or longer or um, met the nutritional kind of minimal standards for that AFCO statement to be on there. Ideally, you want a food that's gone through both that criteria of the analysis, but also the testing as well. I heard you reference an acronym, AFCO. What does that stand for? So AFCO uh, stands for Association of American Feed Control Officials. And so it's a group of specialists, um, nutritionists that have come up with guidelines and it's kind of a regulatory body for small animal medicine as far as what can you expect reliably expect in that food if that food is balanced and complete for whatever life stages that you're aiming to feed your pet for. How does diet affect growth and the aging process? There's little difference between good and great, um, but you can run into issues with regards to a malnutrition if they're not getting adequate amounts of food. So when I look at a patient, we assess um, factors like animal-specific factors, and then also diet-specific factors, and then feeding management and environmental factors. And so Certainly when you've got puppies, uh, you worry about the relative portion of certain ingredients because they're at the growth state. Conversely, when you're dealing with adult dogs, you want to feed a food that's going to help maintain that health and balance that they've already uh, developed over their lifetime. And so as you kind of matriculate into the older life stages, geriatric and senior pets, the requirements change based on how they're doing health-wise. What is their physical standing? Do they have any comorbidities or any other disease processes that may require different food um, and consumption requirements? Well, you know, I, I run across pet parrots all day, every day, and they all have their different philosophies and trains of thought with regard to food. I want to get your take on if dog parents should feed their dogs kibble, canned, semi-moist, home-cooked, or raw dog food. Yeah, so kind of going back to what we touched on earlier, in general, if you're getting a high quality food, it can come in many vehicles. And so it could be semi-soft, it could be soft, canned, it could be dry. You want to look for that AFCO statement. And what I try to tell my owners to do is to be inquisitive. You should be able to contact the manufacturer of these food companies and ask these questions. It should be fairly easy to access. If it's not, there are some websites that have kind of done the work for you. And so for me as a veterinarian, the job is to kind of be that vessel for the owner. And so if the owner is very inquisitive, they're very curious, I kind of gather that information because I try not to have any food um, biases. And so I let them have all the information and that kind of builds the uh, clinician client bond. And so websites that will kind of 
discuss later that I'll put on your on your website so that they can find. We'll give them all the information that they need. There's a Dare to Ask initiative online where they've kind of done the work of comparing all of those things for different foods. So when you have questions, you have a quick way to look what food to choose, depending on what you're trying to to assess. As far as raw food, the general consensus is that in veterinary medicine, we try to refrain from that. And so while it's a little more digestible, certainly may be more palatable, when you're feeding a raw diet, there are concerns of microorganisms. Sometimes the food, when it's uncooked, it can cause gastrointestinal disturbances. Probably, or additionally, and probably more importantly, even if the dog itself doesn't get sick, when you're feeding a raw food diet, those pathogens, those microorganisms can shed in their stools. There's research to suggest sometimes it can shed it in their saliva and their hair coat. And so if you're feeding a raw food diet and you're in a house that has someone who's got a degenerative immune system or who's got an underdeveloped immune system, you could be inadvertently putting them at risk. Depending on the raw food diet, how it's prepared. Sometimes it may contain bones and things of that nature, and that can cause uh, gastrointestinal disturbances. It could also cause perforations, things of that nature to the esophagus. What's your take on freeze-dried raw food? I know that sounds kind of tricky to me. Freeze-dried raw. Yeah, yeah. I actually have clients who uh, uh, prefer to do the freeze-dried raw food. I'm still not a huge fan of it, Again, dogs need nutrients, not ingredients. And so if I run across an owner who's been feeding that type of food and their dogs are thriving on it, then I try to educate them. But I won't necessarily change that food if their dog has already been on it, is already acclimated and they're doing well. Sometimes you can actually do more harm drastically switching a dog's food when they've already grown accustomed to being fed one food type. And so what I would say is we need to take a diligent history. Um, We need to notate it in the chart what type of food they're feeding. And that's part of good note taking. And that way we can chronicle if there's an issue down the road, whether or not it's due to the food or not. So outside of diet, what are some things dog parents should do while their dog is young and healthy to prevent medical problems seen in elderly dogs? Yeah, so it's it's hard to prevent certain diseases, but the things that we can do to, to be as preventative as possible is you want to first establish a veterinary relationship. You want to find a a primary care provider where you can take all your medical needs and you want to make sure that that puppy stays up to date on vaccines, make sure that puppy is on preventative items. And basically, I kind of group it together as preventative health maintenance. And that includes you want to make sure that they don't have any intestinal parasites, any ectoparasites. You want to make sure that they're eating a balanced and complete nutritional meal. You want to make sure that they're hitting all of those growth checkpoints that a normal puppy should. And basically, you want to modulate their environment as best as possible. And so the veterinarians are generally going to help you as far as the, the medicine aspect of it, the behavioral aspect of it. I mean, you're just building a relationship It's a continuum. And so there's not a one or two things that I can say you could point to that's going to necessarily prevent certain disease processes. But I can rest assured that if you adhere to certain guidelines and have an intimate relationship or a close relationship with your veterinary health provider, we can help identify those things early on, try to scave those things off and give your pet the best possibility of living a healthy life. So, Dr. McMillan, what's your take on spay and neutering? Yeah, so I'm a huge proponent of spay and neutering. And so we know and this is this this subject comes up often and it takes on a lot of cultural variables. Um, it depends on, you know, how you were raised, where you were raised, what your belief systems are. So it's a touchy subject. And some of the medical research around particularly spaying and neutering dogs, we haven't necessarily 
hone down on, you know, what the best approach is, when to actually do it, why we do it, what diseases can be caused from it. Um, but there are some things that we do know definitively. And so I'm a huge proponent of spaying dogs, ovarian hysterectomies and neuter, especially if you don't plan on breeding dogs. As far as females, we know there are a lot of deleterious consequences for actually not having them spayed, not the least of which would be unwanted pregnancies. Sometimes a reproductive tract after coming out of estrus can become infected. And so a whole host of issues. There are some suggestions that if you don't get them spayed, they're overrepresented to develop some forms of cancers as well. As far as male dogs, you want to try to eliminate some of those uh, aggressive behaviors, some of those foraging behaviors. You know, a dog may smell a female who's an estrus. He may jump out of your lap or out of your car or dig a hole underneath your fence to try to meet that um, an estrus female. Um, he may get hit by a car by trying to do that or he runs in someone's yard to get shot. So there are a lot of reasons to do it. Um, and if you're not planning on breeding your dog or don't have any experience in breeding your dog, then I always recommend it. What do you think is the appropriate age to spay or neuter a dog? Yeah, so there's two, there's, well, there's multiple trains of thoughts. For me and the way I practice, I generally will spay dogs um, between five and seven months of age. And as far as castration, I'll do it at five to seven months of age or older. And so there is some pretty good research that suggests your, your cutoff is kind of this Puberty. And so if you do spays and neuter prepubertally, there has been some research suggests that there are some deleterious consequences from doing that. But as a general rule for me, staying around that six months of age is kind of that sweet spot for me. There are obviously some benefits of spaying pets earlier. You know, they're smaller, their vasculature isn't as well developed. And so that means quicker procedures, thus less anesthetic time, thus uh, less chances of complication, less bleed. But, you know, sometimes there have been associations between joint and cartilage and ligament issues if you do it too soon. There is suggestions that uh, dogs can be overrepresented to become urinary incontinent if you do it too early. What I would say to owners is to talk about this with your veterinarian. Say what your specific concerns are. There's a lot of information out there and just vet it with your veterinarian and you guys will come up with a plan um, that you both feel comfortable with. Is there an age whereby it's too late to spay or neuter a dog? Yeah, that's a good question. I recommend all dogs be spayed and neutered. And certainly I have spayed and and neutered out of necessity or just sheer medical complications or a medical need to um, spay and neuter older, older, older dogs. And so I haven't really, if, if a dog needs the procedure, I'll certainly do it. As dogs get older, depending on what their health profile is, you want to limit the time that they're under anesthesia. And so if I can couple a procedure, for instance, if an older dog needs a mass removal or a dental and he still is intact, then I will recommend going ahead and, and neutering him. If a female dog comes in for a similar kind of a profile, then I will recommend spaying her as well because those risks and complications don't wane as the dog gets older. In fact, I think the likelihood that a complication will happen increases. And so I will spay and neuter a dog at pretty much any age as long as they're healthy enough to undergo anesthesia. Now, as your dog ages, are there any early telltale signs that your dog may need to be seen by a veterinarian for illness, such as constantly drinking large amounts of water or excessive panting, head tilts, occasional stumbles? Yeah, so pretty much all of those. And so for me, you just want to have a relationship with your pet where you're constantly observing them. 
And then you also want to have a good relationship with your veterinarian, because if you can't pick these things up, if you're not keen on these observations, then certainly you would hope that your veterinarian is. And so one of the things that you mentioned, drinking excessive amounts of water, I think that is a telltale sign. And not only animals, or not only non-human animals, but humans as well. And so certainly if your dog or cat is drinking more and urinating more, to me, how I tell my clients, that's kind of like their oil light coming on. And that does indicate that you need to bring them in to be evaluated. But there's a way that you can practice best practices to try to catch these outcomes. And so usually, depending on where you are, depending on your history or your preference, I usually like to start recommending annual blood work as soon as the dog turns seven years of age. And so that will be a way to try to preemptively catch some of those things um, and try to implement anything that we need to do to try to uh, mitigate those uh, risk factors. Now, you mentioned, uh, you say regular blood panels annually for dogs when they reach the age of seven. What about large breed dogs that may not live as long, you know, at the age of seven, they're geriatric, such as like a Rottweiler or a Great Dane or something? Yeah, it doesn't really change much to me, to be honest with you. So Rottweilers, Bull Massive, Great Danes that are apparently healthy, if they are seven years of age, six years of age, eight years of age, depending, no matter how much life expectancy is left, so to speak, or how that I would still recommend in that blood work. We don't fully grasp the aging process why certain dogs age faster or slower than others. We don't know if it has something to do with their metabolism, how they process certain foods, their over-representation for obesity, things of that nature, joint issues. So I would still, as a general rule, recommend blood work at any dog or cat, you know, seven or eight years of age or older. So can dogs develop or acquire the same illnesses humans develop? Yeah, so we're mammals. So, you know, non-human animals and animals do share a lot of the same disease processes. So a lot of the same cancers, it usually becomes a difference in degree and not kind. And then another thing that you have to take into consideration is that there is not a, there's not the same level of research in animals as there are in humans with regards to maladies, disease processes. And so some diseases that humans get, dogs may actually indeed get, but it just hasn't been unearthed yet. And so things like cancer, pneumonia, heart disease, certainly certain dermatopathies, certain endocrinopathies, certain enteropathies as well, bronchitis, things of that nature. So there's a lot of similarities there. But it is important to note that, you know, dogs aren't small humans, but there are general concepts that all mammals do suffer from. I've known a couple of pet parents that said that their dog had been diagnosed with dementia. How is that proven or tested in a dog? Yeah, so the brain is is one of those things that is very similar in dogs as it is in humans. And so the brain, the heart, the lungs. And so any high-functioning organ over time starts to show degenerative markers. And so the brain in the dog is no different in that regard as the brain in humans. And so there are some signs of senility that we do note. And so you can do brain research. You can also see how they're responding to normal things. Sometimes it's a diagnosis on an exclusionary basis, but dogs that generally will start to suffer cognitive dysfunction, maybe they're staring off at the space, maybe it's brought on about by some other um, provable neurological accident, neurological event. Um, sometimes they may be sleeping more, their muscle mass may be uh, not as dense. Their appetite is dropping, things of that nature. They're more listless. So the bones, the organs, all those things are under enormous stress as we age. 
and degenerative processes are likely. So how important is physical activity to a dog? Physical activity is important for a myriad of reasons. So when you've got a puppy, physical activity is important for part of their socialization. And so, you know, Conrad Lorenz, who is a very well-known behaviorist, suggested like a psychohydro, like a, an energy model. And so you may have a puppy, you're trying to potty train, you're trying to house train, you're trying to sleep during the middle of the night, but he's up and he's restless and he's barking. So they've got an energy store that you want to try to exhaust as much as possible. And the best way to do that is allowing them plenty of time to play and run and jump want to modulate their environment. And so the exercise requirements as you kind of transverse through those life stages changes for different reasons. So older dogs, you want to make sure that they're up and active because you want their joints to be protective. The more they're active, the more they're engaged, the more likely they are to be in an ideal body condition score, the more likely they are to have healthy joints, the more likely they are to kind of have their environment modulated. And so depending on what your lifestyle is, depending on what the dog's lifestyle is, exercise can become part of their identity and a part of their identity that they'll miss once for something, for whatever reason, something changes and they're no longer able to access that. And that can have consequences as far as behavior, can actually have consequences on the overall health. So exercise is very important for puppies, young adults, adults, and geriatrics as well. So how does care change, if at all, as pets transition through life stages? So we just have to be more acutely aware of their needs. And so the likelihood is that, you know, when you've got cats and dogs who are eight, seven, nine years of age or older, those are kind of the ages where we start to notice interconopathies. We start to notice morbidity. We start to notice things like aches and pains. They've been around longer. And so we have to be more, I would say, you'd have to be more consciously aware of their needs and the requirements and how they were last year, last month. And so their needs, I would say, pretty much change based on what they tell you. For instance, if you've got a dog who is kind of transversing through the life stages and he no longer wants to jump in your pickup, you know, that could be a sign that, you know, he's got some early degenerative joint disease, he's got some early arthritis. And so you're going to have to maybe put a ramp up there so that, you know, he's not in much pain when he's trying to get to your pickup. Or maybe you've got a cat who used to love perching at high places or sleeping on the windowsill. But now over time, he or she no longer um, is willing or able to do that. And so you have to be keenly aware and then adjust accordingly. Well, Dr. McMillan, you've given us some great information that I'm sure will be useful to our listeners. How can our listeners contact you should they want more information or have additional questions? Absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at your favorite pet doc. Well, Dr. McMillan, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And we love to have you on the show again if your schedule permits. Thank you, Ed. It was a pleasure. All right. That's Dr. McMillan, everybody. Hi, pet parents. Zoe Dove here. And I want to tell you about our friends at Fido Fitness and Play, North America's number one pet transportation service. Fido Fitness and Play has been safely transporting pets since 2008 in clean, temperature-controlled vehicles, reliably and on time. If you need pet transportation service, call our friends at Fido Fitness and Play at 844-738-3973 or visit their website at FidoFitnessAndPlay.com. You can find them on Twitter at DC Fido. Well, pet lovers, we've enjoyed another great guest 
And I'm so glad that you tuned in to another episode of the Everything Pets podcast. We have a great episode lined up for next week, so please be sure to tune in. Until next time, my friends, always be kind to pets and animals because they'll be kind to you. Find us on YouTube at the Everything Pets Podcast and subscribe. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Podcast Pets. And check out our website at TalkingPets247.com. That's TalkingPets247.com for special offers and product information. Okay, I'm Ed Walden, and I am out of here. Love this episode of Everything Pets? Let us know with a review. Also, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Follow us on social media at Podcast Pets. And check out our website at TalkingPets247.com. This episode is brought to you by Final Fitness and Play, your pet transportation expert.